a month. All right, excellent, wonderful. I, I have heard there's some uh, big shoes to fill with Dave Latham, and many of you have gotten to know this wonderful gentleman. And uh, I tell you, uh, he is a wonderful guy. He has blessed me and left uh, just a wonderful ministry at Christopher Newport. Um, and it's just a, a blessing to be able to come in as the new RUF minister at CNU and to care for uh, just a wonderful leadership team, wonderful students, and a wonderful community. I have been loved by um, your church and a few churches in the area. So thank you for welcoming me and having me here and my family as well. Uh, this morning, we're going to be um, diving into the book of Hebrews. And we're going to be looking at chapter 10 in Hebrews. And we will cover verses 1 through 18. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. And the title of this sermon is A Better Sacrifice. And I'll read these verses. Our author in Hebrews writes, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered. Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would have no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices... Or there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin this morning. Father, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to be a better sacrifice for us, the final sacrifice, so that we can have freedom, we can have healing, we can have forgiveness, Lord, in you. Thank you for taking on the punishment that we deserve on the cross, and in turn giving us grace, mercy, love. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you poured out your Spirit to be our comforter in times of great need and in just daily life that you are with us every day. Lord, we love you. 
and we thank you. And everybody says, amen. Amen. Um, there is a particular individual you might have heard of him. Uh, his name is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, he is the author of the Sherlock Holmes novels. And uh, he's a gifted writer, but he is also a practical joker, if you didn't know that. And one time, um, he sent a cruel and mean telegram to five of his close friends. Um, one night, he was bored with not much to do. He thought to himself, you know, I've got uh, a few close friends. Why don't I write something to them to see how they might react to it, just to kind of play around and to mess with them a little bit. So what he did, Sir Arthur sent them a telegram saying only this. And there was no signature, so the people receiving this didn't know who it came from, but he sent them a letter saying simply this. You have been discovered. Flee at once. He's basically saying, it's like, you guys, you know what you did. You need to get out of here. And, you know, I, I wouldn't expect that these people would have responded, but they did. They got up and they left. They they got out of the city. And these, are, these were, at least on the outside, these were decent, moral people, good folks, uh, friends of his. Um, but what was interesting to their responses is it tells us a little something about our conscience. It tells us that a guilty conscience is a common thing. He simply said, flee at once. All has been discovered. Right? And so that's what I think this illustrates, something um, that a guilty conscience is a common thing for many of us, because many of us have sins that we keep hidden and tucked away, and so many of us are holding on to things in our lives that maybe others don't know about. Maybe on the outside we may look uh, squeaky clean, but the reality is on the inside there may be other things that are going on, maybe sins that we've committed in the past, things that we've holding on to. Um, there may be things in our life that we're keeping hidden, uh, maybe in the past or currently in the present, maybe things that you did when you were younger that nobody knew about and maybe you haven't confessed to. Maybe it's a, a secret porn addiction that other folks don't know about that you struggle with. Maybe it's a serious lie that you've told your children, you've told your spouse or a close friend. Maybe it's a, a half-truth or maybe just a spin on truth that you've told a close friend or maybe even your spouse that you've kept tucked away. Maybe it's a secret account that your spouse doesn't have access to. Maybe it's a reoccurring fantasy that plays out in your mind that only you know about but your spouse doesn't know about. Maybe it's something unethical that you've done just to get ahead at work. Maybe it's shame or guilt that's tucked away um, because you've said something maliciously against somebody else just to get either revenge or to make them feel the pain that you feel. You see, I could go on and on about the types of things and the various ways that we have hidden sins in our lives and that we keep them tucked away. And I do think that a guilty conscience is a common thing for many of us. Many of us are carrying guilt and shame. Or if we're not a lot of times feeling those, maybe the fact is that we're too numb to feel anything at all. Maybe that's you. You see, the thing is that sin, guilt, and shame... They know no boundaries. They really don't. Uh, when it comes to age, ethnicity, when it comes to gender or socioeconomic status, shame, guilt, these things come for us. Satan likes to use these things. And because we feel these things, a lot of times we try to keep some of these sins tucked in our lives, tucked in deep, Well, nobody will see them. 
And so it's this fear of, of being exposed, of, of being discovered, which for many of us drives us inward, where we put up walls and boundaries just to keep others out. Or sometimes if we don't keep people out, maybe what we do is we don't even let people get close to us. When we are getting close to having intimate friendship or relationship, maybe we just flee because we're scared of what people will find out altogether. But we keep this shame, we keep these sins sometimes tucked down deep. And when we keep these sins, this shame, this guilt, when we keep it tucked in and hidden away, what we're doing, we are guarding ourselves and we are failing to experience the fullness of what the Lord wants for us, to experience the full freedom and forgiveness that the Lord has in store for us. And so we miss out on some of these things, being, being okay with knowing that we don't have to be okay with the Lord. We can be ourselves. We can reveal ourselves to the Lord and He accepts us because it's okay to be broken people before the Lord. But when we keep these things tucked and hidden away, we miss out on that freedom, that taste of forgiveness. And so what many of us do in response to these things is we work hard, we go to college, we get married, we have children, we pay our bills, we pay our taxes, hopefully. Uh, we go to church, we sprinkle in a little service and some moral and some good deeds in our lives and, and hope that these moral offerings, these good deeds, these good things that we're doing are somehow going to cover over or make up for the guilt, the shame, some of these sins that we've kept hidden away. And that we've accrued throughout the years. In other words, even if we know that there is grace to be found in Jesus Christ and that Jesus is safe, the problem is a lot of times that knowledge stays up here and it doesn't transfer down to here. Because we live as if we have to do things to earn God's grace. We may know it, that it's available, but we don't live like it. And so our passage here is, is to destroy this notion to tell us that there is freedom, there is forgiveness, there is grace to be found in Jesus Christ and His sacrificial work. Not your sacrificial work and not my sacrificial work. And you know what the best part about this is, church? It costs us nothing. Amen? Amen. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 4 to see this truth. This is our first point in the text. This is limitations of the law. Verses 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, what the author of Hebrews wants to show us is that this old system, this old covenant, which was given to Moses, was insufficient to do away with sins. The laws that God prescribed, the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, the sacrificial offerings of bulls and goats, they were insufficient to remove or take away the sins of God's people. You see, the, the sacrificial practices of the Old Testament, they were but shadows or types of a better sacrifice that was prophesied to come. And so these practices of slaughtering animals, of spilling their blood, 
They weren't actually cleansing the people, making their sins white as snow. They were merely pointing to the one who would come that would finally cleanse God's people and make their sins white as snow. The reason uh, I believe our author is making a big deal about this is because these these folks who the author of Hebrews is writing to are, are probably Jewish Christians. They have been exposed to some of these teachings of Jesus already. The truth that a better sacrifice has come, that the Messiah has in fact come. But because of possibly pressure from the Romans or possibly their fellow Jews, they are now turning back to these former practices which cannot remove sin but only remind them of their sin. I imagine if the author of Hebrews was there with his audience as he was writing to them, I kind of imagine that he would have probably grabbed them by the collar or the shirt and said, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know that on each year on the Day of Atonement, the priest has to offer sacrifices on your behalf and his own behalf. The fact that he has to offer them every year and the fact that he remains standing just tells you that his work isn't done and that this work has to be done over and over and over. So it's not actually fulfilling what it's called to do. The priest's work isn't done. He does not sit down as if his work is finished. He remains standing at the altar as he offers up these sacrifices for the people and for himself. And so these replicas, these shadows, these former practices, they don't make people perfect but they point us to the one who could make us perfect. And so the author is asking us, why are you turning from freedom, which you have in Jesus, back to bondage, which you have in these sacrifices? Why are you still trying to earn your way to heaven, to earn your way to receive forgiveness by human effort? He's saying, don't you know this cannot be done? Don't you know that there has been, in fact, yes, a better sacrifice that has come. A sacrifice that has come, that has eradicated all the needs for any more sacrifices. The Apostle Paul addressed this kind of issue with the Galatians in chapter 3. He said this, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse where there is no forgiveness. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them perfectly. Now it is evident that no one is justified by God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them, meaning all of the Levitical laws, shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, which is the unilateral promise of grace, of freedom, of rest, of healing, might come to the Gentiles, us, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Friends, Paul and our author here in Hebrews, they are making it crystal clear that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he is the prophesied Savior, and that he has come and he has brought and poured out his blessing, the Holy Spirit, on us. And so they're asking us, why are we turning back to the law, the sacrifices, which only condemn us and remind us of our sin, our guilt, and our shame? Or in today's terms, 
they'd be asking us, why are you still striving to earn forgiveness, grace, mercy? Do you think that the veracity for living a more moral life will somehow get you into heaven by doing more good deeds, that that is what's going to earn you better things in this life and the life to come? Do you think that by just doing more good deeds or doing whatever it is that you think you could fill in the blank, by doing more of this that you'll get more from God or that you'll somehow earn more of His favor? And the reality is, is that if we are doing these things, we're attempting to earn our right to be a part of God's family and to be a part of His kingdom. And this is what we call works righteousness. That we are trying to do things to earn God's favor. And our author is telling us, we don't need to do that. It has been earned for us. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is impossible for you to work your way into heaven into God's favor, into His good graces. We may not be able to pay for our sin, but the good news is, church, that there came a man who could. That is the blessing. That is the reality. Our author gives us hope and tells us of one whose sacrifice would end all sacrifices and end all work. A better sacrifice to sanctify us, to change us, and to renew us. And we get to hear about this, this beautiful gift and verses 5 through 10. This is point two, a better sacrifice. Verse 5 tells us, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of Me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. What these verses revealed to us is a stark contrast between the limitations of the law in verses 1 through 4 and the unlimited power of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice in verses 5 through 10. For in verses 1 through 4, we see man's imperfect obedience to the law and to God's will, but here in verses 5 through 10, we see Christ's perfect obedience to the law and to God's will. You see, Jesus Christ doesn't come to make a sacrifice for us. No. He literally descended to Bethlehem in human form to become the perfect sacrifice for us. You see, Jesus cares about you and me and His people so much that He left perfection, being with the Father and the Holy Spirit and perfect communion to come to take on our broken flesh, to enter into our broken world and to care for us who are broken and messy people. Jesus came into, into the world to make right that which you and I cannot make right. And we haven't been able to make right since the time of Adam and Eve. Jesus came to be the light which enters into our darkness. He came to live a perfect life because the reality is, is you cannot and I cannot as well. 
And Jesus, despite facing all earthly temptations, he fulfilled the law perfectly, which demands perfection by never sinning even once. He fulfilled all the prophecies about himself, and he was obedient to his Father's will so that you and I could be forgiven. And because we're forgiven, we have total access to the King of kings and Lord of lords with all the benefits that come with being a part of His royal family. You see, in King David, in Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8, he foreshadowed of Jesus' coming by saying this. He said, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God, for your law is written on my heart. The author of Hebrews is quoting King David in this psalm. Because even though God prescribed the Old Testament sacrifices, He knew they could never fully satisfy the cost of sin. They merely pointed to the one who had come to satisfy the cost of sin, and who had the Torah, the law, written on his heart. But you ask, who is it who could accomplish God's will perfectly? Is it King David, as it would seem in this psalm? The answer is no. David did not treat Bathsheba very well, watching her inappropriately while she bathed. And then he sent her husband, Uriah, to the front lines so he would most likely die so that he could marry her. So no, David is not the focus of this psalm. Jesus is the future focus of this psalm. And that's what our author is pointing us to. It is Jesus who would accomplish God's will perfectly. He is the one who would have the scriptures written on his heart, who would fulfill them, and who would care for us in a deeper and a better way. The will that God is referring to here in verses 7, 9, and 10 is the will of God to offer, to bring a better sacrifice. A sacrifice that would get rid of the old order and usher in a new order through Jesus. A better sacrifice that would once and for all eradicate the penalty, the guilt, and the shame of all of God's people, past, present, and future. You see, Jesus knew what he was born to do. He understood the full weight of what God willed to do for us on earth. Remember what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he was arrested. He prayed. And Jesus withdrew from them, the disciples, when he's in the garden. Just about a stone's throw away, he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he, Jesus, prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Friends, Jesus knows the depths of our hearts, of our guilt, the shame that we feel, that we indulge in our lives. He knows them. He experienced them more physically, emotionally, spiritually than what we could ever imagine ourselves. He took all of them on Himself on the cross. Yet, He willingly went to the cross to bear your darkest secrets and my darkest secrets. 
our most ugly desires, our most vile sins that we've committed. He went to the cross for those so that we wouldn't have to. You see, there's nothing that we've done in our past that we're doing now in the present or the future that could ever be too much for Jesus because he has come to take away our sins, to eradicate them and to nail them to the cross so that we don't have to pay the penalty of them and so that we can experience healing now and this life and the life to come as well. And so my friends, why do we put up emotional walls and barriers? Why do we flee from intimacy with others and with God? Why do you hold on to your familiar guilt, your shame and darkness? Why, why keep it hidden and tucked away? Why do we do these things? Why do we also just try to live as if we have it all together? Because the reality is, is I don't. And I know you don't. And so hear me when I say this, because this is for me too. This is for you. This is for all of us. Surrender your guilt, your shame, your hidden secrets to Jesus because I can tell you he is safe and he loves you more deeply than anybody ever could and he humbled himself to a level and to a degree that we will never fully grasp this side of heaven in order to set you free and to forgive you he wants to give us total 100% forgiveness in his son Jesus Christ and we get that Church, when we learn about Jesus in his scriptures and when we accept him as Lord and Savior of our lives, we join God's family. And when we join God's family, we are accepted with all of our mess, all the guilt, all the shame, all the sin. Just like a good father loves his prodigal children and cares for them no matter how far they stray in this life. So too, our Heavenly Father, even though we struggle Yesterday, today, and in the future with sin, He loves us and will always care for us. He will run to us and to give us healing, to give us mercy, and to give us grace because He is a good God and a God who loves us and a God who is tender and safe. And He loves you and He will be with you today, tomorrow, and forevermore. You see, Jesus is a better sacrifice and because he's a better sacrifice, we are eternally forgiven. Not just, temp- not just temporally, but actually eternally forgiven. And so I say this just as a reminder, honestly, for myself. And I say this for a reminder for you all. And we can say this together because we need a reminder and I do too. And I want us to say, I am forgiven. And so let's just say it together. I am forgiven. That is reality. You are. I am. In Jesus Christ. But I want to ask you, do you feel like it? Have you tasted the freedom, the weightlessness of the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ? Have you experienced true grace in your own life? Do you feel the freedom to be transparent with others? To share with others your darkest sins? The things that you're holding on to that we feel guilty for? Do you feel the freedom to do that because you know you're forgiven? Do you know that it's okay to not be okay with God and with other folks, believers, that we don't have to have it all together? Do you forgive others out of the depth of understanding that you and I are totally forgiven? Are we more forgiving to others because we are forgiven? 
I can tell you, if you struggle with this, like I do, fully accepting God's total forgiveness and living a life that's consistent with this truth, I think then this last section of text, it's for you because I know it is for me and I need it and I know we all do. And so this is point three, total forgiveness. And this comes to us in verses 11 through 18. Verse 11 says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And so our church, I ask you to slow down and take a moment to soak that in. No longer does there have to be an offering for sin in your life or in my life to make things right with God? The work of paying off your debt is done. But can you taste the freedom of that truth? Have you experienced it? Just like paying off your mortgage, your car debt, your school loans is freeing, which it is, how much more so is it to know that the debt that you and I could never pay off in a thousand lifetimes has been paid in full. Because that's the reality. We are no longer judged by God. Now that doesn't mean he won't discipline us because like any good father, we receive godly discipline in our lives. But that discipline only means that we're secure in his family and that he loves us. And you know the reality is, is you can know that your status is secure in God's family because we see Jesus. Do we see him standing? No, we see him sitting down at the right hand of the Father because his work is done. The Old Testament priest remains standing, but Jesus does not. He sits because it has been finished. One of the commentators I was reading this past week, he said, for the priests stand timid and uneasy in the holy place, anxiously performing his awful service there and hastening to depart when the service is done as from a place where he has no free access and where he can never feel at home. Whereas Christ, on the other hand, sits down in everlasting rest and blessedness at the right hand of majesty and the holy of holies with his work being fully accomplished and waiting its full reward. And so because Jesus' work has been completed, we are totally forgiven. He is sat down. The work is done. Verse 14 tells us that Jesus has perfected those who are being sanctified, simply meaning that People who love Jesus, we are being set apart. We are being made holy day by day, being made in Christ's likeness. And being made holy refers to our position or our status before God. It doesn't mean that we're perfect now because our wives, our children, our friends, and our pastor knows that this isn't true, right? 
but it does mean that we are holy in God's eyes and we are being conformed daily to his likeness and to his image. Essentially, the already of the infamous already but not yet is that we have been legally declared free from our sins and the not yet is the continual sanctification process that we are going through now until the day we die be made more like Jesus. So we are holy in God's eyes, but we are not finished products this side of heaven. But the good news is, is that we're forgiven and we're going to continually be forgiven because we're going to need it. And the Lord will continue to transform us this day and all the days until we meet Him in heaven one day. They will be made more like Him, which is a beautiful thing. The problem is, um, most of us, uh, we may know some of these things. Maybe we don't, but maybe we do. But we have a hard time accepting this truth, that forgiveness is free. Because everything in this life screams there's a cost, there's a debt to be paid, there's work to do. And what we do is we take that mentality and we apply it to our daily lives. That's what we do. We may assent in our heads that there is forgiveness, but we don't live like it. We don't live freely. We don't confess our sins to others, to God, knowing that we're fully accepted. And so we live in bondage. We keep things tucked in deep. And you say, well, Jeff, how do you know that? Um, it's because most of us live, in, live a life that's uh, in fear of others, in fear of others' judgment, what they think of us, um, particularly if they only found out about fill in the blank, whatever that deep, dark sin or whatever the sins that you're struggling with, if they only found out about that. And we, we feel fear, legitimate fear about these things. I know I do. And I'm sure many of you do too as well. And I can say most of us have ways to go and truly getting at the depths of tasting and experiencing all that God has for us as He forgives us. And I can say a lot of that because we have a way to go because of the way we talk with one another. We have a way to go and truly experiencing and tasting all that God has because of the way we communicate with one another. Because the reality is most of us don't just feel free and safe with everybody just saying, I'm really struggling today. Can you pray for me? Can you care for me? We don't always feel that freedom, and, and I hope we do, but I know we don't always do that, and we need more of that in this church, in the community, and the Christian world at large. And so a litmus test which challenges me to kind of think about this level and depth of forgiveness is this. The ability to which you can name and understand the payoff of your sin, like what you get out of it, and be able to process this with safe people is usually an indicator of the depth in which you truly grasp the Lord's forgiveness for you. Because those folks who are tasting the Lord's forgiveness are those folks who are courageous and willing to be able to talk about their guilt and their shame and their sin with safe people and how the Lord is healing them and is walking with them as they struggle through this life. And I know that's not easy to do. It's not easy for me. And, but this is a sanctification process that we're talking about that we get with Jesus. And if you will not or cannot go to those dark places in your life, then I'd probably say, you may understand forgiveness up here, 
but it hasn't translated here just yet. You see, Jesus came to be a better sacrifice for us so that his truth would connect from here to here. Forgiveness has been accomplished, but most of us are still struggling to find ways to learn to accept it and to totally receive it. But I say, friends, rest in the truth that Jesus has come, that he is a final sacrifice. And if you love him, know that he accepts you just as you are, which he does. For Jesus loves people who know they are broken. And so we can stop trying to sell something to other people. It's not true about ourselves because none of us truly have it all together. Because in Jesus Christ, we can be messy people. We can have messy lives. And he loves us, forgives us, and walks with us in our mess. And that's a beautiful thing. And so church, I say, ask the Holy Spirit to help you to grow in this truth. Because I know I have to ask the Lord to help me with this too. And believe what the prophet Jeremiah says to us at the end of our passage as he points us to Christ. He said this, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds, he adds. I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. For where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for our sins. And church, we know that this is true. Because when Jesus received the sour wine on the cross, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit for you, for me, and for God's glory alone. God is good, amen? Amen. Let's pray.